You must not conclude that we do deny those glorious three which bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. Neither do we deny the infinity, eternity, or divinity of Jesus Christ, for we know that he is Almighty God. William Penn, in his 1668 letter to the minister, Jonathan Clapham. This is Fundamental Beliefs of Conservative Friends, What We Are Conserving. It is session number 23. Originally, I had been planning to talk more about the Bible, but then at the last moment, I was kind of thinking, no, I'd prefer to talk about Jesus. And uh, say a few words here as to Friends' traditional historic understanding of Jesus. Of course, with all the splits in Quakerism in the 19th century, there were quite a variety of changes in that, that understanding. But conservative friends, hopefully, and continue to have the basic same understanding of who Jesus was and is. I'm going to start off reading something from the brief synopsis of the Principles and Testimonies of the Religious Society of Friends. I've shown this before, and this is located in our yearly meeting, ohioyearlymeeting.org. It's under educational media. I will read a few things from it as just referring to Jesus and then go on to talk a little bit more from what I've read, but even some other items connected with it. In this work, I'm just going to start in the middle of a paragraph from Fox's Journal, Volume 2. I'm assuming that's the 1891 edition. It says, And we own and believe in Jesus Christ, his beloved and only begotten Son, in whom he is well pleased, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the express image of the invisible God, by whom were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. Continuing, thus affirming our belief in God the Father and in his Son Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, We desire also to affirm our belief in the virtue of his atoning sacrifice on Calvary for the sins of all mankind, as through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we are led to repent of and forsake our sins. So through the atoning efficacy of the blood of Christ shed for us on Calvary, we are enabled to experience remission of our past sins. And I'm going to read further from George Fox. George Fox further says in his answer to the declaration of the great Turk, after setting forth, quote, how that Christ suffered in the flesh and died for us. So it is clear that the eternal, invisible, and incomprehensible God was not, nor cannot be crucified. But Christ, the Son of God, suffered according to the flesh, not in his Godhead. So Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And that Christ, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So it was not the eternal, invisible, incomprehensible God that was crucified and died, and that did taste death for every man. But Christ, according to the flesh, who was manifest to take away our sins, and in him there was no sin. Christ was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. And Christ, through his death, destroyed death, that sin wrought, and the devil, the power of death. 
In about the ninth hour, when Jesus hanged on the cross, he cried with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then continuing, So it is clear the eternal God did not die, nor was crucified, but Christ was put to death in the flesh. Thus testifies Matthew, one of Christ's apostles. So he was the one offering who made an end of all the offerings among the Jews through the offering up of the body of Jesus once for all. In the same work, George Fox says furthermore, And therefore Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him, this Jesus, the son of Mary, the Jews, with their wicked hands did take, crucify, and slay. But it was God who loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And though the Jews did crucify Jesus and slew him and hanged him on a tree, yet God hath raised him up on the third day, and God hath exalted him at his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Let's see if there's one more thing I want to read right now from the same brief synopsis. Okay, I'll read one more thing here. To show the great necessity of a right understanding of what Christ has done for us without us, meaning outside us, as well as what he will do for us within us, as we submit to the manifestations of his will made known in our hearts, John Crook, in a confession of the faith of the early friends shortly before his death, uses the following language. Neither doth regeneration or the believing in the light of Christ within make void the death and sufferings of Christ without at Jerusalem, no more than believing the scripture testimony without, outside, concerning Christ's death make void the work of regeneration and mortification within. And continuing the quote, But as saith the apostle in another place, so say I in this, for as the man is not without the woman, neither is the woman without the man in the Lord. Even so, is not the death and suffering of Christ without at Jerusalem to be made void and of none effect by anything within? Neither doth the light within make that of none effect without, but both in the Lord answer his will. For though there is and may be a knowledge and belief of what Christ did and suffered without the gates, outside the gates of Jerusalem, in his own body on the tree, and yet sin be alive in the heart, in the work of regeneration not known. Yet it cannot be so where the light within is believed in and obeyed, so as to have its perfect work in the heart to regenerate and make all things new in all things of God. Thus man can never make void what Christ hath done and suffered without, and yet this new birth of Christ formed within and dwelling in the heart by faith doth not limit or confine Christ to be only within and not without also, but both within and without, according to the good pleasure of the Father, to reveal and make him known. For he fills all things, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and yet he is at God's right hand, far above all heavens, in a glorious body. This is a somewhat difficult issue to begin to talk about. It's a topic that has been talked about and discussed and argued the past 2,000 years. Jesus is both human and divine. I may have mentioned here how among one of the earliest heresies we know of in early Christianity, that of the Docetists or Docetists, which are mentioned, but not by name, but they are there in the letters of the epistles of John. 
believed that Jesus was really just divine, and they only had like the integument, the skin, making him look like a human being, but he wasn't human. And this was considered a heresy, because Christ Jesus is fully human and fully divine. But how is this so? This is a question, as I said, has been discussed throughout the history of Christianity. Of course, today there are many people who believe just the opposite, that Jesus was only a human being, nothing fully divine in him. And yet we as traditional Quakers believe he was both. Okay, I just want to say things I've probably said here in the past, but it may be good again to repeat them. The name Jesus goes back to the Latin word Jesus, which is borrowed from the Greek Jesus, which was borrowed from the Hebrew Yeshua. And Yeshua is a shortened form of Yehoshua, which means Joshua. It's the same name. Jesus is actually the name Joshua. If you look at some languages, it's the same name, whether it's Joshua or Jesus. They don't make a distinction as we do in English. And of course, we frequently get the expression Jesus of Nazareth because there was no last name. People just were known by their first name and may have been known also by where they were from to distinguish them from other people. So we know of Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth, Joshua of Nazareth. One other way of addressing a person to distinguish him from others is to use a patronymic to say that he was son of or daughter of Jesus, son of Joseph. This was frequently used and was used in the New Testament. One point that's important, though, is so often, unfortunately, in English, people think of Jesus Christ and think of Christ as a personal name. It is not a personal name. Christ goes back to the Latin word Christus, which is borrowed from the Greek Christos. Christos means the anointed one, anointed with the Holy Spirit. As it says in the New Testament, fully anointed with the Holy Spirit. So I often will say to people, think of putting a comma there between Jesus and Christ, because Christ is not a name, it's a title, like King of Sweden or Queen of England. It's Jesus anointed. Kings were anointed, of course, and prophets in ancient times. This is a point that's important to make, I think, because you also see the word order reverse, Christ Jesus, meaning the anointed Joshua, the anointed Jesus. He is the one who's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's had the Holy Spirit poured into him, rubbed into him. That's what anointed is. We get to the word Lord. I think it was in this group last week, I mentioned this word Lord in the original Greek. And I should say I'm saying some of these things because I'm sort of repeating some of the earliest friends. I was just amazed in reading them and understanding that I said, yes, they really had a deep understanding of the basic meanings of these words, even those who did not know any Greek, like I myself do. But there was something really there that they got the right sense of these, that the Spirit led them to a correct understanding of the concepts here. Now, Lord, we don't have any lords and ladies in the United States today, but the Greek word is kurios. And kurios is the word that we translate as Lord, but the basic meaning of the word is owner or master. And that's an interesting thing, because if we translated that more accurately as owner, Jesus the anointed one, we'd have a better sense of how Jesus was understood to be our owner for those who are his followers, our master, 
The word kurios means master or owner. That's the basic sense of the word. An owner of an object or a master of a slave. And that's a powerful statement about saying that and accepting Jesus as Lord to understand him as owner or master, our master. We must be in complete obedience to his will. We willingly, voluntarily allow ourselves to be servants, to be slaves of such a divine and human being. This is an important sense. What I read you can read throughout the New Testament is that Jesus was born. He was born a human. He died. He was crucified on a cross. He was executed by the government, and he actually died, fully died, really died as a human being. But there is something else about Jesus, and that's where I want to read something here that I think is a very important passage. I don't recall reading it in this group, but it really has the sense and understanding that's very important, I think, for how we relate to Jesus. And that's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I have to say here, though, when I look at some translations, it's unfortunate that there are some mistranslations of this passage because it's a very important passage. It is important to think of these words and to think of them in their original sense because I think Paul is getting to the very basic essence of who Jesus was and why God the Father raised him from the dead. God hasn't done that to everybody. If we go to verse 5, I'm warning people because there are various commentaries on this that I reject as well as some others do too because it doesn't really get to the basic understanding of what's being said here. There's a comparison being made between Jesus as the second Adam compared to Adam, the first Adam, and that's important. Also, what Paul is saying to us in terms of what we must do, in verse 5, he says, Be thinking this in you, in yourselves, that which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's important. Be thinking. This is how you should think. These things. Be thinking this in you, which was the thoughts in Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, in the image of God, that is, just like Adam was created in the image of God, Jesus existed in the image of God. I'm just translating this from the original. Did not regard being equal with God something to be grasped at. He did not consider equality with God something that you should go after. If you recall in Genesis, the sin of pride, that primeval sin of pride, of egotism, the serpent told Adam and Eve that if you want to be like God, eat this fruit. So this is being equal to God, being another God. And they disobeyed. Jesus did not want to do this same thing that Adam did and so many of us, in maybe many smaller ways or other ways, always feel like we'd like to be in total control of everything. So he did not regard being equal with God something to be grasped at. But on the contrary, he poured himself out. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of his ego, his self. Self is a religious word that is very common in Christian writings referring to one's ego. He renounced his ego taking on the form of a slave. And then the next phrase, it depends on your manuscript, in the likeness of a man, that is like the son of man you find in Daniel, having been born in the likeness of a son of man, 
and having been found in appearance as a man or as Adam. Again, the word for man and Adam are the same word in Hebrew. He humbled himself. He took on full humility. He got rid of his ego. He overcame his ego. He overcame that worldly ego, conquered that, having become obedient to death, and that a death on the cross. So complete obedience to God. And recall, Paul is saying that we need to be thinking these same things in ourselves. So therefore, God super raised him up, exalted him, raised him up high, and graced him with the name above every name. This word name in Greek means name, but it also refers to the basic nature of something, the basic essence of something. The name of God, what is the basic essence of God? Power. So God graced him with the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Under the earth would be those in Hades, the place of the dead. And every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, is Kurios, is Lord, is Master, is Owner, to the glory of the Father. In Kurios, this word Lord or Master or Owner was the name that was given to God the Father only. Because Jesus was so humble, 100% humble even to death on a cross as a criminal, he obtained this name Lord, so that we call him Lord Jesus Christ, owner Jesus the Master, or Master Jesus. This is an extremely powerful statement that Paul is making here in Philippians. I think it's sad that the English translations don't often get to it, but our first Quakers, our first friends really understood this, that Christ was everything, Christ was all above all, that there's just nothing equal to Christ in their lives. I thought this was an important passage to really understand what motivated those true Christians, Quakers, and others as to how they really saw Jesus, both as man and as divine. Henry? Yes. I'm looking at verses 5 and 6 in the King James, and I interpret them differently. Read the King James. Okay, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Rather than thoughts, which you gave that verse in five, the King James seems more appropriate because thoughts are an action taken on the part of the self. Whereas the mind can be something that can simply receive spirit. Okay, let me say something here. This is a verb in the imperative mood. It's be thinking. It's in the plural. Be thinking. You should be thinking. You must be thinking. You have to think. Be thinking this in you. Be thinking in you this, which was in Christ Jesus. That same thought, which was in Christ Jesus who being in the form, in the image of God. And then something, robbery, this is a word that has been discussed. Again, it's uh, not clear the exact meaning, but the sense makes good sense if it really refers to something to be grasped at, not robbery as such. That's a different interpretation too than I would give it. Who being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I would interpret that as being he realized that it was not out of bounds for him to see himself as equal to God. See, I would disagree with how the Greek is here, because this word equal is like an adverb. It's not like an adjective. I am equal to someone. And then the word robbery, I, I find us recall correctly, people don't think that that's the meaning of this word. You know, they may have back three, 400 years ago. This is a certain kind of construction in Greek. He did not regard, and then it's, it's an actually the, the word T-H-E, the, to be equally to God. So that's the thing that is not to be grasped, is to be something equal to God. What I'm saying is that I agree with others that I think the King James translation was not an accurate translation of this. Oh, I still disagree with you, Henry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just looking at the Greek. Okay. Any other comments at the moment? My Bible, which is the uh, Niv Bible, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. No way. Sorry. This is a verb. The verb is phreneta. It's an imperative form in the second person plural. It's a command, think, or be thinking. And then the noun is be thinking tuta, which means this, be thinking this. And then he goes on to explain that. Ha, that which was in Jesus, that thought that was in Jesus. So be thinking that that was in Jesus. But it wasn't really a thought, it was the mind of Christ that we are to have, not the thoughts of Jesus. No, no, the thought would be everything that follows in the next six verses. This is all grammatical stuff. It's a neuter, singular, and it's, okay. It's, okay. Yeah, I, I'm just seeing a difference between concepts and an open receptivity to God, which is really an absence of concepts. See, I'm looking at it because Jesus was thinking this, and Paul wants us, or who he was addressing here, the Philippians, to think this way about the need to be absolutely obedient to God and his will, and to give up one's ego, one's self. That is the true repentance, that's the true transformation that's needed, is to think and obey. The word here, obey, is important, to obey Christ, to obey God. As I said, you can look at several of these translations, and they're all over the place. I mean, you can believe what you want, but it's important, I think, to really look at what the original says. And there are, of course, lots of discussions here and lots of dispute about the meanings of some of these words. And unfortunately, there are some variations in the manuscripts, which also makes it messy <laughs> as to different words or different forms. I think it's clear that it really is a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. Looking at that, we are to follow the second Adam and not the first Adam who sinned, who did not obey, who wanted to be like a God and be equal to God. We need to be like Jesus who did not see that as something to be grasped at. But even though, because he humbled himself completely, nevertheless, God the Father raised him up from the dead and placed him in the highest position super uh, raised, exalted him, super raised him up to a position and gave him a name, a title, as well as an essence, a nature, a basic nature that is above all other natures. 
so that because of that, every being, whether it's angels in heaven or human beings or those in Sheol and in Hades, place of the dead, they should be acknowledging Jesus as Lord, that same title that was given to God the Father in the Old Testament in Greek. It's also the same name that was given to the emperor of the Roman Empire, Lord. In early Christians, one way of testing whether they were really Christian was to ask them to pour a libation, an offering of wine onto the ground or onto an altar or whatever, and at the same time say, Caesar is Lord. And a true Christian cannot say, Caesar is master, Caesar is my owner. They can only say, Jesus is my owner, or God the Father is my owner or master. One way to get some other perspective on this is to look at the Quaker Bible Index and see how the early friends use these verses in context. That would give a better sense of how they saw these verses. I do want to say, though, there's a possibility this happens occasionally because of a mistranslation. You have misunderstandings sometimes. That's rare, I think. As you said, the Quakers often had a better sense of what the Greek words meant than you would find elsewhere. Yes. And I think that that's, that's a valid thing. There is some kind of a comparison going on between what they knew inwardly and the words that they were reading which allowed them to fine-tune their interpretation. Right. It's that Christ is above everything, above father and mother, sister and brother. He comes first because he is Lord. He is master. He is our owner. If we accept him voluntarily as that highest position in the Roman Empire, as well as was translated into Greek from Hebrew in the Old Testament, that was the name given to God, the Father. I'm using Richmond Latimer's translation of the New Testament, and I don't think there was anybody, at least in his generation, that knew Greek any better. I don't hardly know it at all. I have to use a trot all the time for it. But there's one little bit in here that kind of puts what Pat is saying and you're saying together, I think. In your modesty, always thinking that others among you are better than yourselves, not looking each for his own interest, but everyone for the rest. And then keep this purpose in yourselves, one which is also in Christ Jesus. That's not conceptual thought. Keep this purpose. And then it goes on to say, he was in the form of God, but did not think to seize on the right to be equal to God. But he stripped himself by taking the form of a slave. That language catches the idea of felt significance and interprets it. Depending on your denomination's theology, you're going to get a variety of different kinds of understanding here. I think I'm trying to remember somewhere in the next few sentences, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, the obedience, I think, is the focus in that Jesus was totally obedient. We are to be totally obedient to Christ. And then, of course, here we're talking about outward Christ Jesus, but elsewhere we can talk about Christ within us, the inward Christ the light of Christ, the spirit of Christ within us. And Paul makes that very clear in Galatians. 
where he's really struggling for this divine spirit that is only a seed in some of his congregation. And he's struggling there. And he says uh, in verse 19, okay, the translation I have here, my little children for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Let's see, my children, my, my students, whom I'm having labor pains until Christ is, here's the same word, morphothe, morphe, that image, that form of God, until Christ is morphed in you, is, is shaped in, in you, that the spirit of Christ is no longer just a seed, but it has grown, it has become something. The word for seed in Greek is the same word for semen. So he's struggling to get them to realize, to be aware, to be conscious of Christ within them, that there is this divine seed that needs to be watered, nurtured, to be obeyed. The point I really wanted to make today is that clearly we conservative Christian Quakers believe in both Jesus as human and Jesus as divine. Throughout the modern times, as well as ancient times, you've got all these variations that Jesus wasn't. He was only a man, not divine, or he was divine, but not really a man. Unitarians, universalists today, and I would say that's a false universalism that we some quite often see out there. Again, making the point that this same seed is within every human being. It's not only in people who call themselves Christians or call themselves Quakers. What we as Quakers should be doing is having people understand that that is within us all and that it's something that they need to be made aware of and to follow up on that awareness as it becomes more apparent to them, evident in them. Henry? Yes, the question I have is about the way people and Quakers use different words like Christ and Jesus. And maybe I don't always know why I use one word or the other, but sometimes I feel like people's reactions can be different. Like sometimes I'll say Jesus. I don't know why exactly, but it can be upsetting for somebody. And sometimes I get the feeling that maybe they see as some kind of separation between Jesus and Christ. I actually was going to talk about that, and thanks for bringing it up. I myself, as I think probably most other people here, will use those words interchangeably. If I use the word Jesus, I may be meaning the Christ aspect of him, or I might be saying Christ when I mean Jesus only. And I think that's fine, and I do it, and I think probably most everyone does. But there is a sense where you might need to understand that there are two parts there. There's another expression, the Word of God. If you recall in the first 18 verses of the Gospel according to John, it talks about the word that was in the beginning. And that word is the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S, which doesn't usually mean word. It usually means anything that is spoken, anything that is uttered, anything that is expressed verbally. It also can refer to one's rationality, the rational mind within oneself. Wisdom is the word that is used in the Old Testament to refer to that. So Christ is our wisdom, the, the logos, this utterance of God, and the word became flesh. But then I think in ordinary talk, as well as throughout the New Testament, that we are going to use one or the other word. I do that all the time, and I'm, probably most everybody does. But if I wanted to be clear about saying something specific, then I would just be talking about the word of God because the Word of God is something spiritual, 
but it was enfleshed in Jesus, so we can talk about Jesus as the Word of God. And of course, Quakers historically have never called the Bible the Word of God. The Bible is an expression about the Word of God that we know as the Spirit of Christ, that is, Lord Jesus Christ, but also that same Spirit that is in the Old Testament, that same Spirit that was in the ancient prophets. I can always refer back to 1 Peter chapter 1. I may have mentioned this here. I don't know if I mentioned it here or in the Bible study group where it says, and this is about the Spirit of Christ, concerning this salvation, the prophets, the ancient prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours, made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. Here you have this Spirit of Christ in the ancient Hebrew prophets. I don't know if I've mentioned it here, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but again, we're referring to Christ. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were all immersed into Moses, into the law of Moses as well. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. They put Christ to the test. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, that holy thing in Bethlehem. So you can make these distinctions between one and the other. But in ordinary conversation, I don't, and I think most others wouldn't. But there might be times when it's necessary to, to explain something. Because I can recall among early Quakers, there are some who were so literal that they were laughing that friends could say that Christ was in us. How can Christ, a man, be within you? You know, they were just taking this so literally. And unfortunately, there are people who are very, very literal. Literalness kills at times. It's so important to be able to get beyond the literalness. We can always fight over the literalness, but it's more important to really seek that which is divine in those words. Henry, I appreciate what they just shared, and my experience has been similar. And I appreciated David asking or bringing up the question. But I know over the many years with various expressions of Christianity and all that, I've experienced where some would say, well, if you say Jesus Christ, you've got it backwards because Christ is his title, it's not his name. So you get corrected and say you need to say Christ Jesus. You'll see Christ by itself, you'll kill Jesus by itself. And then they say if you separate the two, then you've separated the title from, from the name of the person. But then when you say Christ by itself, then you're only using a title. And then you'll have some scholars say that, well, Christ was mentioned in the Old Testament, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were predicting Jesus. 
In other words, Jesus fulfilled that. They expected a Messiah or a Christ, but Jesus was not the one to fulfill it because in the Jewish they were expect, Jewish line of thought, they were expecting a different thing. So it's always appropriate to put them together. But my experience, and I think within friends and all, I see those two used interchangeably. But, but I think it's raised a lot of questions over the years with a lot of people, and I appreciate that we can have this discussion. Like I said, I would put a comma between Jesus and Christ. In ancient Greek and Hebrew, there was no punctuation whatsoever. It's only modern editions that put in punctuations, commas and quotation marks and periods and question marks. That's all modern. We have to sort out what should be there, and there should have been a comma there. Once you get into a certain tradition, it's very hard to change it, even though it's not accurate. I just remembered one thing, too. Pat just reminded me of it earlier. Fox and someone else wrote a book in which I think this is actually in one of the volumes of the eight-volume set of Fox's works, where they go through a variety of expressions and show that it's incorrect in the King James Bible, and they correct the English of it. And then people get very confused at times. I, I just want to mention this because these are important questions in terms of Bible translations. Fox usually used the King James Version, but he also used the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible. I can remember a writing by someone misunderstanding that the translation that Fox was using was not the King James Version, but was the Geneva Bible, which referred to the Word of God as it. The King James refers to it as he. The Greek word is both. The word can mean either he or it. But because that Geneva Bible used the word it, they were trying to explain why Fox was using it without realizing he wasn't using the King James Version. Probably he was in prison and all he had available was the older Geneva Bibles. So he was just using that particular translation. And again, the word means both he and it in Greeks. So Henry, if, if I understand thee correctly, then if we look at the early language and how it was used in the early scripture, you said today, if we wanted to convey that same meaning and put it in the punctuation of modern English, then it would be appropriate, you said, to put Jesus, comma, Christ, and then it's fine in our communication to use either Jesus or Christ. Yeah, and like I said, I use Christ Jesus, I use Jesus Christ, I have no problem with this. That brings up another issue, and then we probably need to stop. I'm not a Greek scholar as such. I mean, I I'm originally majored in Greek and Latin as in college, but then I shifted, I switched majors. But I'm very grateful and thankful to the Lord for my linguistics background. When I was studying linguistics, that has given me a very different perspective on language. I'm assuming most everybody here maybe except Hati, have English as their native language, first language. And when you start studying or know about foreign languages that are dramatically different from European languages, you begin to understand language in a very different way, in meanings in a very different way. I'll just say a couple of things. We all break up the color spectrum into red, blue, green, orange. You go to other languages in other parts of the world other than Europe, and they don't break up the colors that same way. It's a color spectrum. One color blends into another, and your language might be breaking off different parts of it so that you don't have the same color matching the same color in another language. That happens. There's no reason why you have to do it the way most European languages do. 
But I can even say in Russian, they don't have a word for blue that corresponds to our English word blue. They have two words, голубой, it means the color of the sky, and синий is the color of my blue jeans. It would be blue in both cases, but the Russians break up that color spectrum there so that there's a light blue and a dark blue, and they are not the same word. They're not synonymous. Another way, too, if I'm just saying this to give you a way of thinking differently about words, we have in English in lots of languages right and left, the right hand the left hand. In some languages, they don't look at right and left that way. They look at it in a very different way. They look at it as to where it is in terms of a compass, what is north-south, so that your right hand might be your north hand at one point, but you turn around, it will become your south hand. We have to kind of switch things around. If I'm looking at you, I know your right hand is really on the left side when I'm looking at you, but that's the right. So we have a kind of little gymnastic thing to do there in English, but they have a very different way of where it is in terms of north and south, so they need to be aware of the four points of the compass. One last thing, too, a number of languages mark evidentiality. If you say, I think I've mentioned this once, it rained yesterday in New York. Well, you have to add a suffix, something to the word before or after, saying the truth about that. It rained yesterday, and you use one marker, and it means, I know I was there. Or, it rained yesterday, and I use a different marker, I saw that there was a wet ground there. I didn't see it raining, but I, the ground was wet. Or, another suffix, if it was told to me that it rained there. And you can go on four or five different kinds of truthfulness. Of course, you can always lie. But these are problems when you want to translate from the original Greek into these languages. One more example, because this is the kind of issue that comes up. Most European languages just have a word for we, you and me, W-E. Many languages have more than one word for we. We could be me and you, but nobody else. We could be me and somebody else, but not you. And we could be two people, not more than two or we meaning more than two. So some languages like Pidgin English has like six different words. So if you have that in your language and you read in the Greek, say something from Acts, we sail to Malta. Which we are you going to translate that from the Greek, which is just like English, a general we, into your native language? If you don't know, because in the original language, it doesn't matter how many there were and who they were. But clearly, you have to make a choice. You may make the wrong choice because the original doesn't tell you. So this gives me a certain perspective on reading the Bible that, again, is from a linguistics perspective, but I'm a little bit more uncertain at times about translations. Just knowing how languages around the world can vary so dramatically. Anyway, that's enough. Any last questions or comments? Well, I think I would just say quickly is that Sometimes I just say Jesus, but I feel like maybe it's something about that Christ was a human being and that sometimes that can be something relatable about it or something comforting about it and it feels like the right word. So I feel an affection for saying it, I suppose. And Fine. Absolutely fine. I do the same. Unless there's a specific reason why I want to talk about some specific aspect then I don't think about it that much, unless there's a reason. Okay, we should finish now. I, uh, I, I'm still trying to get it in my head. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting.
It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The William Penn quote in our introduction was paraphrased from his 1668 letter to the minister Jonathan Clapham. References and the original quote can be found on the Wikipedia entry on Penn's book No Cross No Crown and the William Penn entry in the website The Diary of Samuel Pepys. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.